This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy Program, your Sunday morning health and wellness hour, where highly esteemed, erudite and accomplished doctors with long and distinguished careers entertain and inform you about all things medical and psychiatric. Unfortunately, those guys weren't available this week, so you've got me, Dr Anabolics and Dr SK, manning the fort for the last show of the year. Yes, 2016 is almost over, and it seems to me that most people are fairly pleased about that. Really? It's been a bit of a stinker all up. Anyway, we're finishing with a bang today. SK is going to talk movies. We'll look at some new drugs for Alzheimer's disease, ways of getting in control after you've experienced a bout of mental illness, and if we have time, we'll talk about some uh, helpful hints to um, if you're wanting to stop your medication. All this and more. Stay with us, and we'll sign up for another year of Radiotherapy in Style. Okay, so we're going to move straight ahead. <laughs> Hello, SK. Look, without anybody holding my hand, look, look what happens. Dead air straight away, first off. Well, it's homage to Tall Man after many, many years, isn't it? It's nice to see a bit of dead air every now and then. Have it's, you been? I've been as happy as two dicks. <laughs> uh, sorry, a happy, as happy as a dog with two dicks is what I meant to say. It uh, came across wrong. But I'm very glad to see 2016 over as well. It has been a ripper, hasn't it? It has, but I, you know, I somehow worry that 2017 is not going to bring us much better, the pessimist in these thinks. Yeah, well, looking overseas, it doesn't give you much joy, does it, I have to say, at the minute? We have to all just increase our support for each other and do a lot more activating and agitating, I think, to kind yes, of... Yes, we're a sort of happy little island, isolated from the trauma of the rest of the world, I worry. We don't buy into it enough, really. Yes. But yes, interesting times ahead. So you've been doing... I've, I've been seeing your face on TV a couple of times, I have to say. You had a more of a shirt and tie thing happening on the TV, I noticed, than you got today, but um, looking very erudite yourself. Yeah, well, a lot of people didn't recognise me because I was wearing a shirt and tie <laughs> and a suit jacket, uh, actually. But, yeah, we got a bit of media during the week uh, for some data that was presented at the Clinical Trials in Alzheimer's Disease Conference in San Diego. In fact... Uh, Roughly uh, seven days ago, almost to the exact hour, I was on stage presenting some data from clinical trials. And oh. it's always actually good to go to an Alzheimer's trial and be able to present something positive because much like uh, we've just alluded to 2016 being a pretty bad year, 2016 has also been a pretty bad year for Alzheimer's disease clinical trial outcomes by and large. In Are fact, uh, you know, over the last 10 years or so, there's oh. been... Uh, around 100 phase 3 clinical trials, so the final drug trial before a drug can become available on the market. Around 100 trials have failed in the last 10 years and there's not been one successful phase 3 study in that time. Uh, Part of the reason for that is uh, probably people present with Alzheimer's disease very late by the time they first have symptoms. We know that people have the, the changes in their brain that leads to Alzheimer's disease now for up to 20 years before they actually develop symptoms. Really? So by the time you've got the first signs of memory loss, you've actually got quite advanced neurological disease going on there. So, And is there anything in that 20 years um, window that you can pick without chopping bits of your brain out or anything? What is what is there that you can pick up? Any any advance warning markers at all that we've found? Well, they're looking for a blood test marker. Uh, that search has been going on for some time and it's been unsuccessful. Though there's some work that's looking at combining like a dozen different blood tests and constructing a risk profile on that basis. Currently, the best we've got is if you have uh, a spare $1,500, you can go and have a PET scan that... Uh, 
will give you a, an injection of a radio-labelled marker that will bind to the pathology in the brain that's uh, suggestive of Alzheimer's disease. So you can pick really? up the presence of the pathology. Mm -hmm. What we don't know if we were to scan you this evening, mm. for example, anabolics, mm. is whether you would develop symptoms in 20 years or mm. tomorrow. All that mm. tells us is that you've got the changes in your brain, but uh, we're not at sufficient state to say how predictive at any particular time point that is of developing Alzheimer's disease. Plus, you've got not much you can give me to stop it happening anyway, even if I know it's going to happen. I guess the only thing I can do is get my affairs in order and cancel my library card. Is that what you're telling me? Well, actually, no. And this gets back to the, you know, one of the whole central thrusts of what we like to promote on radiotherapy, which is preventative health. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you've got the protein in your brain and you've, uh, you've got the pathology, there are things that you can do whilst you're healthy yeah. to lower your chances of getting Alzheimer's disease. And really, all of us from our middle years onwards should be doing all of these things. You know, the, mm. the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease now are pretty well known that okay. the single biggest one yeah. is old age. So, you know, if you're unlucky or unlucky enough to reach the age of 90, you've probably got a 50% chance of having Alzheimer's at that time. Mm. But the rest of the risk Which factors... 50% people don't. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is interesting mm -hmm. and, si and significant. And that's that's mm. the bright side, of course. Mm. But also it's it's an argument against uh, uh, prevention. Uh, it's a disincentive mm. to prevention because you've, uh, mm. you've got to make significant and meaningful and sustained lifestyle modifications mm. to lower the risk of developing a disease that if you reach the age of 90, you might not have got anyway. So what are the other things that we can do. Okay. Uh, the other major risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, some of them are modifiable, modifiable, some of them aren't. You can't do anything about family history. You can't do anything about the fact that you're older. But otherwise, things like blood pressure, cholesterol levels, uh, and control of diabetes, if you have diabetes, are really important. And as with many other things, stopping smoking. You know, if there's one single positive thing that all of us can do for our health uh, in a variety of ways, it's to stop smoking. There are other things with Alzheimer's, though. Uh, you know, regular physical activity, cardiovascular exercise seems to promote brain cell growth. And, you know, if, even if you've got the Alzheimer's pathology and the brain cells are dying off in terms of absolute numbers, mm. you can compensate to some degree for that loss of brain cells by promoting the remaining ones to form connections to their neighbours. So our brains are like a big parallel processing computer. Mm. If a brain cell typically has 200,000 connections to its neighbours, if you can make that 300,000 for argument's sake, you can increase your brain's processing power and delay the onset of symptoms. Now my great hope is that learning French will help me do that. Am I, am I barking up the wrong tree or is that a good thing to do? No, you're actually not particularly, Dr Anabolics, now that you're in the post-retirement years of your career. Uh, I've often heard it said that the worst thing you can do when you retire is sit down and watch daytime television because that's not stimulating your brain. But there's some very good research that shows you can delay the onset of Alzheimer's perhaps by up to five years or so by keeping mentally active after you retire. Because what you're doing when you're learning French in your instance is you're stimulating your brain and you're forcing brain cells to make new and healthy connections. So that's something that's cognitively stimulating that you enjoy that will fortify your brain and potentially delay the onset of Alzheimer's regardless of whether or not you've got the protein in your brain that might cause it.
So if I had, say, three or four members of my family who had had Alzheimer's disease, would that be, a, would that be an indication to, for me to find $1,500 somewhere and go and do that? Would that be the test, the PET scan? Would that be sensible or is there really no one for whom it's worthwhile? Okay, well, I guess there's a couple of points. Firstly, even if you did that, mm. you know, you've got the argument that you advanced before that, you know, we don't have a drug that can alter the outcome at the moment. So knowing you've got the protein, you know, you might be more motivated to take preventative steps so that you delay the onset of symptoms, but, you know, it still can't alter the outcome ultimately. Family history is probably overrated. You know, I have a number of people who see me in private practice. Uh, they walk through the door and say, I'm really worried about developing Alzheimer's because all four of my grandparents died from Alzheimer's disease. My first question back to them is, how old were they when they actually died? Mm -hmm. And if all four of their grandparents died from Alzheimer's at the age of 95, mm -hmm. you know, that's not a worrying family history. Okay. A worrying family history is when you've got uh, one or more relatives who developed the disease at an early age. And by early, I mean under the age of 60, 65, that sort of thing. Mm. So true familial Alzheimer's disease is actually pretty rare. So the, so the new drug that you were talking about on the TV the other day, mm. is this one of the ones that's failed the phase three trials too, or is this a new, new more promising one? What's, what's this one all about? Well, this, is, this has got the flip side, you see, because it hasn't advanced to phase three yet. They're very promising results, but they're from a, what's called a phase 2A trial, which is the first time any new drug is put into people who have the disease. Mm. So you've got phase one studies yep. where people were healthy volunteers typically are given the drug to make sure it doesn't poison them right and once its safety profile has been determined it can then be trialed in uh, volunteers who actually have the condition so this was a study that just had 32 patients in it mm -hmm. and all of them got the active drug so there was no placebo arm which mm -hmm. is another obvious yep. weakness in the trial yeah but uh, overall followed for 12 months people stayed very stable in terms of both cognition memory thinking and uh, and function over that time so they were doing as well as many things at home as they were 12 months ago and there were some very strong anecdotal reports from individual patients in the study who regained you know really important quite complex activities of daily living like uh, beginning to paint again. I was an international artist who had stopped painting and she was holding an exhibition the last time I spoke to her. And another lady who had stopped playing the piano because of her Alzheimer's who began playing again. So there's those sort of meaningful functional improvements. The downside of course though is it's an early stage trial and a large part of the media this week was to highlight the fact that uh, here in Australia next year and Melbourne will be an integral part of that, there'll be a larger uh, phase two slash three study with a placebo arm of up to 300 patients. So hopefully mm. that will tell us in about 12 months whether this drug actually uh, holds as much promise as the very early studies think it might. And of course, unfortunately, medical literature is full of drugs who have got to that, that um, uh, hurdle and have fallen at that hurdle, haven't they? Because it is very, the, the, the uh, plural of anecdote isn't data, is it? It's, <laughs> as they say, that you can, you can have anecdotal changes because of differences in person's experience, difference in the type of, of illness they've got, different in supports. There's a lot of things that can contribute to things, to people getting better other than just the medication that they're taking. Absolutely. Including spontaneous remission, for example, which often... Which is unheard of uh, in yeah. Alzheimer's But in other, in, other, in other illnesses, I'm thinking, yeah. yeah. like cancers mm. and so yeah. forth. Yeah. I guess what gives me some hope with this particular drug is it's not just another Me Too drug. It's got a completely mm. different mechanism of action to uh -huh. uh, the drugs that have failed the big phase threes before. Mm. Uh, there's a 
a debate between Alzheimerologists about whether it's uh, a protein called beta amyloid or a protein called tau that is the key pathology in Alzheimer's. The weight of opinion is behind this amyloid molecule. It's overproduced in Alzheimer's disease. And whenever you've got a condition in medicine that's characterised by an overproduction of something, it suggests a number of generic ways to treating that. You can, iron, you can try and decrease production, mm-hmm. you can try and increase the removal of the excess, mm-hmm. or you can try and block the toxic effects that that excess produces. Yeah. So various trials that have failed have looked at uh, all three mechanisms, and the big one that failed recently was a, a monoclonal antibody that had been designed to target this abnormal amyloid. And uh, that data was presented last week as, wa- as well, and uh, basically it wasn't statistically significant. But that, that drug, solanezumab, had been the great white hope of Alzheimer's disease for the last three or four years, and to hear it fail was a disappointment to many. Mm-hmm. This drug that I'm talking about, it, it targets uh, a different receptor within cells. It's called mm-hmm. the Sigma-2 receptor. And when that receptor is turned on, and it's constantly turned on in younger, healthy individuals, in in young, healthy cells, Mm. this receptor being switched on helps the cell clear all abnormal proteins from within it. So it doesn't buy into the argument of whether it's amyloid or tau. When this receptor is turned on, it clears abnormal proteins, as well as having effects uh, modulating things like inflammation and calcium homeostasis within the cell and so forth. Mm. So it's a very much an upstream modulator of neurodegeneration. It doesn't buy into the amyloid or tau argument. If it does what it claims to do, which would prevent the production of both. And one of the things that differentiates older people from younger people is that uh, older cells have underactivity of this Sigma-2 receptor. So the drug aids to turn it back on to help restore cellular function and maintain what they call cellular homeostasis. So it's a very interesting drug and uh, hopefully we'll see a lot of progress next year on it. Acting as a much better real estate manager to get rid of bad tenants no matter what caused the bad tenants to come there in the first place. It's yes, just sweeping them out and cleaning them out. Rather than taking them to the tribunal and getting the sheriffs in at the end of the day when they've trashed your property and uh, destroyed, your, destroyed your residence. So yeah. what you said there, does that suggest that as younger people have these uh, processes of developing these proteins there all the time and for some reason the thought is that these that that mechanism gets turned off and so there's all this garbage just building up and blocking transmission on some level or yeah pretty much i mean one of the the lines of thinking that led the responsible company to develop this drug was they started by asking the question what's the difference why why do old people get alzheimer's why is it only old people who get it yes and uh, the answer they came up with was that uh, older people under express activity of this signal receptor Mm. Uh, we all have this protein called amyloid floating around our system, by the way, anabolics. Mm. You mm. and I mm-hmm. have it in our bodies at the moment, but hopefully mm. it's, it's a particular length that doesn't tend to precipitate out and cause these plaques that are present in Alzheimer's disease. So uh, Alzheimer's has an abnormal form of amyloid, and it's that abnormal protein folding that uh, the Sigma-2 receptor targets. So you're feeling a little bit more hopeful about this new one and fingers crossed we'll go into phase three trials next year and watch this space. Is that where we're at? That's where we're at and it's very exciting that the next study will be conducted uh, entirely within Australia as well. It's a, it's a US based uh, pharma corporation called Anavex Life Sciences who uh, own the drug and did the development. They decided to do their phase two 
here in Melbourne and they're doing their phase two, three in various sites across Australia. So very exciting. If there are people listening who might want to take part in those trials, how would they get in touch with the people coordinating that? Ah, okay. So a plug. All right. The, the study will be looking for people who do have Alzheimer's type dementia and not all dementia anabolics is Alzheimer's. So you need a confirmed diagnosis of Alzheimer's with uh, what's called a mini mental state examination or an MMSE score of between 16 and 28. Uh, If you meet those criteria and would like to email details of your past medical history and your other current medications to adclinicaltrials at cgmc.org.au, adclinicaltrials at cgmc.org.au, uh, we are sort of collating expressions of interest and once the sites have been finalised, we'll be farming people out to the sites closest to them to potentially participate. Thanks for the plug. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So uh, I thought today, I would, given that it's this time of year, we often get a bit more spare time to think about things and it's a good time for reflection and it's a good time for planning. Don't you reckon, SK, it's this time of year to a little bit of... Usually a brief window between the, uh, yes, the dramas of the year ending and the year beginning, absolutely. But, so with that in mind, I thought I'd just run through some ideas about how to you know, maybe pick up the pieces and reflect. If you've gone through a bad year or particularly if you've had any uh, episodes of mental illness or psychological distress of any kind, this year and you're kind of getting back on your feet I thought I'd go through some ideas for you know aiding your recovery and how to make sure that hopefully you can reduce your risk for something like that happen again in next year so just some basics it's the wrong time to do that Sally because a lot of people who've had uh, say experiences with depression uh, they'll they'll get worse over Christmas Christmas seems to bring out uh, things that remind us of things that have gone wrong I'm glad you said that I actually think it's the best time to do it for exactly that reason because You've got to get prepared if you've been... Let's let's use the example of depression as an example as, as I talk through this because it is, it is a, uh, I think, a common thought that um, you probably shouldn't talk about what's happened. You may not be able to, you know, you, you, know, you shouldn't reflect on bad things that have happened. It'll bring out bad thoughts. I'm actually from the other school. I think the way to get on top of these things, to manage things, is to actually start being really clear, reflective and, pl- and um, do some planning about it. And, and I'll, maybe it'll make some sense as I, as I go through this list of what... <laughs> some things to do. I always start my segment with that hope in mind that at some stage it will make sense. At <laughs> some uh, stage it will yeah. make sense. So, look, let's say you've been through a difficult period. Let's say you've had a bout of depression, for example. It could be anything, but let's say you've had a bout of, of depression. And, look, you've emerged out the other side. The worst is behind you and you're left feeling like you've been hit by a train. And most people do feel really exhausted after they're in, in recovery from some sort of a, um, a, a mental episode of any kind. First thing to know is that every person reacts differently to, to these situations. There's, there's no two kind of recovery journeys, if you like, that are, that are alike. But there are a number of very similar experiences that people do often share that are worth kind of reflecting on. Uh, most people will say when they come out the other side of something like this, whether it's a first episode psychosis or a depression, or a severe bout of anxiety or panic disorder, they'll say it's really, uh, sh- you know, shocked them. Often it's, if it's your first episode, it really knocks your socks off quite a lot. And people feel like they're, they're un- this was unexpected. They feel overwhelmed. They think, I can't trust my brain like I used to be able to trust my brain before. Uh, your world can feel very much
much less sort of certain and um, like you're standing on very shaky ground. Are they, are they what people say to you when you meet them, meet them SK? Those sort of well, yeah, I, I certainly agree that uh, people tend to take several months to truly recover yeah. from an illness like this. But uh, I'll, I'll throw back to the question you asked me in relation to Alzheimer's disease. If you have had an episode of depression and it's come out of the blue and there was no obvious precipitant, mm-hmm. you know, where does that leave prevention and preparation for the next episode? What can you do to fortify yourself against the recurrence? Okay, exactly what I'm going to be talking about. So people can feel very indecisive at these times and they can feel really, they can feel sad, they can feel unfocused, very distracted, often very nervous about the future. As you say, how can I stop this happening again? What, what am I going to, is this going to happen again to start with? And um, there's, you know, a, a very... A worrying thing that people often describe when they say every little tiny thing like a little tiny bit of sadness has me worried that it's going to be a full-blown episode or a little bit of panic on the tram and I'm thinking I'm going to go back into this. So it's very, it, it knocks people's off centre a little bit. So um, when you look around at the consumer literature you read about um, people who've been through episodes like this often talk about building resilience and that can at times can seem like a really you know tall order. How do you go about building resilience? So I thought I'd just put some practical tips out there today for people who are in that in that situation um you know how do you sort of guard against guard yourself against this sort of thing happening again how do you get ready how do you prepare yourself when when you're feeling like there's almost you know didn't you didn't have any warning last time what's going to happen again so of course resilience in the situation is being able to adapt to the situation and be able to get back to some sort of positive lifestyle positive functionality you know feeling like you're master of your own destiny like you used to feel and not being knocked around by the waves of uh, destiny um importantly it doesn't necessarily recovery doesn't necessarily mean completely being without uh, symptoms often people do uh, have ongoing and lasting symptoms of some kind and these have to be managed and that's the best word i think you can use in this how do you manage this so that you can get back and feel a resilience about your future so, um, first of all, there's one, the first thing I'm going to say is that it's important to recognise that recovery is a thing. As you say, it, it really takes a few months. It's not nothing. Mm-hmm. And just like a hurdler who breaks his tibia, you're not going to be jumping over hurdles the first time you come out of plaster. You, it, it is a thing. And any mental health disorder takes a while. So don't expect too much of yourself too early. Is that the, the message there? In beautiful, si- simple language, that is exactly, exactly. Don't expect too much of, you, of yourself. Um, if you've been through something si- uh, significant, you know, things have changed. It's not like nothing things happen think something has happened in your life and then it's going to be part of your story it's going to be part of what makes you who you are in 10 years time and it's actually amazing how many people reflect in 10 years after an event like this um how you know something good comes of these things it's not all bad often there are positive outcomes from and i know many many people who have said to me you know i wouldn't wish that bad of depression on my worst enemy but you know what I actually learned a lot from it and I'm a more tolerant person and there, there was something that was actually changed me for the better. I've heard that from many, many people. You're looking sceptical again. No, as, you, as you've explained it, I can sort of see where you're getting at. I mean, uh, one of the things I do hear from people who are depressed is that when you've got depression, you know, other people don't empathise with you in the same way that they would empathise if yes. you had a broken leg or a fractured tibia. That's right. Uh, the, you know, the common thing that I hear from people is they're just told to get over it and get on with life or pull yourself together, mm. uh, which... And I suppose having that insight through having suffered an episode yourself at least gives you empathy for what other people are going through. That's right. And, you know, depression being a very common condition, I think. 
20% risk over our lifetimes, you know. A lot of people are going to have experience with depression and you'll know what uh, anabolics is talking about when you do. You do, that's exactly right. So the best place to start, I reckon, to, to get into that management place is to consciously sit down with someone you trust. You can do it on your own if you want to, but I would suggest doing sitting down with someone you trust, putting an hour aside and actually start to reflect on what happened debrief a little bit you might do this with a therapist or your best friend or your partner or somebody you trust review and talk about what happened how's your life been impacted so so that you can get yourself kind of prepared because the um the fact is that many psych illnesses do have a relapsing and remitting pattern very many of them and if you've ha- if it's happened to you once, you are at a, probably a high risk of it happening again. So that may be able to be modified, it may be able to be prevented the next time, but it is you are probably facing a slightly higher risk than someone who hasn't been through it the first time. So the good phrase here is forearmed, forewarned is forearmed. Very important. Get your, You have been forewarned, get yourself forearmed. It makes a huge difference. Does this question of forewarning and forearming reflect the fact that you know, when people have their first depressive episode... Mm-hmm. Initially, at least, they don't necessarily recognise what's going on. You know, some of these symptoms aren't necessarily obvious to the person who's suffering from the episode and it might take you several months of symptoms which may or may not be clear before you actually go and seek help so part of forewarning yourself is having an understanding of your relapse profile you know what was the first thing that went wrong the last time and what should i be on the lookout for exactly as part of that first reflection the first thing to notice is that you have survived and you've got and you've moved into remission so you actually have done so somewhere along the line your brain has adapted you have moved into a new place and you're going and you've and you've got to celebrate that you've got to start then secondly by looking back exactly as you say in that from that position look back what happened before this all started that's a really good question to ask the beginning of the episode what was do some analysis of what was going on leading up to it because you probably at the time as you say didn't realize what was happening didn't perhaps see it from an outsider's point of view didn't notice didn't know enough about um psychological illnesses to kind of have it have a perspective on it were you tired were you sleepless were you overcommitted and overworked uh were you experiencing high levels of stress had something bad happened in your life were you using a lot of alcohol or drugs more than you normally do? Um, that might have contributed to the onset. What were the sort of triggers or the events that led up to it that at the time seemed immaterial but now looking back seemed like they played a role? Is there an important point here in relation to alcohol and drugs? Because, you know, a, a large part of the reason that people use alcohol and drugs is to make us feel better about things. So we have this sense that alcohol is, is good for us because it elevates our mood. But uh, mm. we do know that alcohol, when taken chronically, it's actually a central nervous system depression and high alcohol use is uh, a risk factor for for depression. So it's actually a trap when you're feeling low to try and drink yourself out of it to feel better because ultimately you end up feeling worse. Absolutely. And if that's what happened to you, if you look back and say, you know, I was using much more than I had before and I was, you know, I I had three nights where I've forgotten what happened. I can't remember a thing about those three Saturday nights and I know that was what was... If that's what happened to you, then that equation that you're talking about there, the decision, the decisional point that, that all of us have whenever, particularly coming up to Christmas and celebration times, do I drink more or do I drink less or do I drink none at all? That decision has to be informed by your individual response to to alcohol, what happened last time, what are the risks for you and if it's an if, if it really played a big role in something that was detrimental to you then that's going to push your decision making point, your, your, your indicator way back towards moderation or 
should probably. If you're and, thinking, and as you say, it's only with the benefit of hindsight and reflection that these things become apparent to us. Often yeah. it is, exactly. So um, looking at all the factors um, in the cool light of day can give you a huge amount of information to help you sort of get prepared for any relapse. And they'll be highly specific, as you said, they'll be highly specific to you as an individual. They're unique and they form what's called, as you mentioned before, a relapse signature, exactly what, what you said. It's just like what is the particular things. And most people can often, if you often think about it yourself, even if you haven't been through anything severe, we often know, look, I know when, um, when you know, my, the anniversary of someone's death comes around or Christmas time or um, before exams. I know these are the points for me that I really get stressed. I don't thrive in those times. I, you know, I know this is points of... Then that might be where you say, well, at that time, I'm going to kick the booze down to all I'm... You know. yeah. And also yeah. recognising that uh, not all stress is necessarily identifiable That's as negative. Exactly. You know, some of the most stressful things in people's lives are objectively really positive experiences. I'm thinking about yep. things like marriage, like moving house, like Christmas celebrations and holidays. Absolutely. They all score very high on sort of stress scales because mm. we have to adapt in order to do something different and prepare for them. And so, so and some people thrive on being, you know, highly um, out there, edgy, on the edge of things, and you know. So it's that's why it's an individual thing. Yeah, that's why it's useful for you to sit down and reflect on what happened to you. Where did where did this all start, and what happened? So when you've teased all those things out, you're in a very good position to plan how to adapt and respond to them should they happen again. You're in a much better, you're a much more informed position. So make a plan. Make a plan to minimise all of the factors, which I'll call risk factors, if you like, that seem to make things worse for you in the lead-up or during this episode. At the same time, and it's, this is equally important, um, we don't talk about this as much, reflect on all the things, both personal and environmental, that actually helped you get through. Because you have got through and you will get through. So what was the good things that you had going for you that were actually pluses in the plus column? These are often your personal strengths, mm. you know. Um, you actually, you, you sought help at early time. You were able to seek help. Uh, you told people what was happening. You, um, you, you did act to reduce your drug use immediately. You um, cut out some of the extra stress that you had on your plate. You put off that decision about doing something. There will be things that you did that help, that you know, in retrospect, helped you get through. And the flip side of that is there will be things that you did that were completely unhelpful yeah. as well. So being able to identify those, you know, how did you try and cope? with these things, what worked, what didn't, and uh, what could you do better next time? For sure. The other thing that uh, part of that is, is it's always good to include what happened with your family and friends in that in that thinking process too. What When did I involve the people around me? What impact did it have on them? What did they say to me at the time? This is a tendency, isn't it, to withdraw when you're depressed and to That's not right. involve people that you'd normally take into your confidence. And you know, is that a mistake? And would I have been better off uh, engaging with those supports earlier? This is the time when things are okay, when you're back on your feet and things aren't in the middle of a crisis. This is the time to make have those thoughts in your mind and get a plan. So thirdly, you know, give yourself time to do all this. It is going to take a time, as you said, and, and the life changes are going to be uh, big, but they can be managed. So allow yourself plenty of time to do this. Fourthly, I'm going to suggest that you get yourself informed, significantly informed about what's happened to you. This includes getting professional help, of course, if you can, staying under extended supervision. Some people say, oh, look, I feel better now. I'm not going to go and see the doctor anymore. I'm going to stop my medication. I'm going to do... This is not a good idea. It's really important to stay under supervision for an extended period of time until you're right back on your feet and feeling very comfortable. One thing I hear a lot, anabolics from patients who've uh, had problems with recurrence, is that I, I went off my antidepressants 
antidepressants because A, I felt better and B, I was worried that they were addictive because I've heard stories of people going off antidepressants and the depression coming back and there's an inference from that that, you know, the antidepressants are addictive. Mm-hmm. Could you address that? Well, it's, it is very hard to tease out the, you know, the minutiae of that when you think about it. It is a bit cyclical but most people, most con- the consensus amongst most clinicians working in that field is that it, what, what it represents is that you have a, uh, an underlying uh, tendency towards depression. It, it, it has not been fully treated yet and you still need the medication to really get you through. And, uh, you know, if you're stopping too early, you're putting yourself at risk of, of that depression surfacing again and it's not, you, know, you need more time to consolidate before you decide to do that. When I hear those arguments from patients, I sort of make two points. The first is that I've never seen anybody go out and uh, hold up a 7-Eleven because they need money to buy antidepressants so yep. that they don't get cravings. That's very low street value. That's a very good yep. sign. Yep. And the other point, which I think is probably more relevant and more serious, is that uh, if you draw an analogy with other serious treatable illnesses like diabetes and asthma, <laughs> you know, if you go off your insulin and your diabetes comes back and your blood sugars go out of control, does that mean that you're addicted to insulin of Mm. course it doesn't it sort of means that you have an underlying potentially ongoing problem Mm. that might need ongoing treatment now that doesn't mean to say that uh anybody who starts antidepressants is going to be on it for life i hesitate to um, have everyone anyone think that but there is a way of reducing medication and and that's better than uh, stopping suddenly outside supervision the best thing to do is to do it under supervision do it slowly do it when you're stable and do it uh, with a lot of safety nets in place but under supervision is number one i think the guidelines used to be, you know, if you've had one episode of depression with no obvious uh, precipitant, then you should be continuing antidepressants probably for at least 12 months mm-hmm. before considering stopping. And the more episodes you have over your lifespan, the uh, the more pressing the argument for remaining on something long term. Because if your particular history mm-hmm. is that you've had multiple episodes of depression since your early 20s and roughly once every couple of years you get an episode, then, you know, it doesn't take Einstein to predict what mm-hmm. your course of disease might be in the absence of treatment. It doesn't have to be necessarily medication treatment, but mm. psychological treatments as well. That's yep. uh, something to continue uh, to fight the illness. And the other thing apart from repetition is also the severity. For example, if you were talking about taking high blood pressure medication, antihypertensive medication, now if you present for the first time with a stroke to A&E and people say, oh, you've got high, high blood pressure, then you're going to be very um, sensible to stay on your um, blood pressure medication for much longer than if you just it gets picked up in a routine. And the same thing, if you're a person who had, a, for example, a suicide attempt or something like that as your first part of your first illness, you need to think very, very seriously about um, staying on it perhaps longer than someone who's had a milder episode. So it's seriousness and severity come into this decision too. All of those things should be taken into consideration and should be done under supervision by someone who knows what they're talking about. As you say, it doesn't have to be medication, but just supervision is, is really important. And as I say about getting educated, there's lots of information out there now about almost any kind of mental illness you can think of. There's good, there's good websites, government websites, um, uh, medical websites, consumer websites that are fantastic, the fantastic amount of information. There's no excuse these days for really not being fantastically on board with what people are thinking about the situation you've been through. You're not the first, you won't be the last, and there's a lot of people who can give you good advice. So number four is get informed so you're really on, on board. The fifth, the fifth and last is I would say 
say is, as I think you touched on this before, is to make a relapse prevention plan. Sit down at the back of your journal, the back of your diary, a bit of paper stuck on the fridge, doesn't matter where. Get Actually get something on paper. It's a very good mental exercise to get something on paper. Um, what were my early signs and symptoms that told me something was going off kilter? What will I do and what will my family and friends do if they see these things happening again? Mm. In other words, it's a nip it in the bud note. <laughs> and actually involving somebody else to act as your canary in the coal mine perhaps as well. If somebody else notices changes in, in, in you, you should sort of empower them and encourage them to touch base with you and see Ab- how you're doing. Absolutely. There's nothing like nothing like a good family member you trust to say, you know, give you a little nudge behind the, you know, the, the cards. I'm, like, oh, I'm a bit worried about what you said yesterday. Come and talk to me again, mm. you know. Do you think you should go and see John Smith again? You know, whatever it is, absolutely. Get your family and friends, people you trust involved. And then also, what sort of um, what sort of care do I want if this happens again? What have I learned about what, you know, do I want to start med- restart medication, for example, much earlier this time? Do I want to go and see, get more uh, group, do I want to do some group work next time? Do I want to make sure I get psychological support earlier? Do I want to stay away from hospitals completely because I can't stand them? I don't want to go back in another ward in my whole life. There's, you know, people can have a vast array of really clear ideas about what they want next time when mm. they've been through it once. So I get those, get those down on paper so other people can see them and you've got them. And it gives you, in my experience, it gives people a really nice solid feeling of, um, Support, comfort. I'm, I'm back in control. I'm back in the driver's seat. I know what's happening, and it's it's a great thing to do to go to start managing things. Um, so, and just as a last note, when you're making your future goals, remember to fuel your own optimism and ha- and hopefulness wherever you can. It is there is absolutely no reason not to have hopefulness and optimism about these things. Most uh, mental disorders of any kind can be managed extremely well these days and you pl- there are people out there who can help you and there's every reason to be optimistic and hopeful and uh, you know don't forget about that don't don't uh, think this is the end of the line it never is and it's there's a whole lot of reasons to you know get back in control manage things well and get the best outcome you can from this because sometimes it can have unforeseen positive adv- positive outcomes that you'll never think at the time what an unambiguously positive segment when, when all else is absent hope Remains. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm being. Am I being saccharine again? Is that, is that your code? For no, me no. Being love, love your work, <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, um, SK, you're going to tell us about a movie that you, uh, one of your favourites, I think, called Altered States. Actually, uh, I only saw this movie relatively recently. Ah. And I was, I was prompted to actually view it because I've been looking into spending some time in a flotation tank or in, in what's called reduced environmental stimulus therapy. I've been to committee meetings when I want one of those. Oh, yeah, just to be able to isolate yourself from the noise in the room. But uh, flotation tanks and uh, so forth were quite big back in the 80s mm. and uh, I just read recently that they were making a bit of a comeback and was, was looking into them and there's mm. a couple of different types of flotation tank therapy but typically you're in a, a small capsule that's got very heavily salted water in it, usually got ah. Epsom salts added to it so that the specific gravity of the solution means that you can float in there on your back and not sink. And it's actually such a density that it's actually very hard to roll over in that sort of density water as well. Good so it's very safe and okay. you're not going to drown. Mm. But this water is typically heated to skin temperature so that the sensation of where your body starts and ends somewhat mm. diminished. Mm. They're usually sealed so that they're completely black within and there's no environmental light can enter. And they're usually soundproofed as well. 
So essentially you're in a very highly sensorily isolated position for up to an hour and this is uh, meant to be a very relaxing uh, sensation. Actually you're freaking me out just a little tiny bit. Maybe I'm not suited for this. Go some ahead. People, some yeah. people I'd imagine would be freaked out mm. by this, you know, being left alone with their own for- thoughts for an hour. But in the first 40 minutes or so of uh, flotation tank therapy and you know, maybe one in 20 people can't handle the, the hour and they leave, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's usually possible to experience things like itching in various parts of the body but the prolonged sensory uh, isolation is said to affect brainwave activity such that you generate a predominance of theta brainwaves which are associated with uh, creativity and problem solving. So if you've got a problem that you want to mull over, sitting in a flotation tank is a way of potentially achieving a, uh, a creative solution. There's also purported health benefits in terms of uh, lowering blood pressure and maximising blood flow as well. But Altered States deals with uh, what can happen, if you like, when flotation tank experiments go awry. Ah. (laughs) It's a a 1980 uh, American sci-fi horror film that was actually adapted from a book of the same name. And both the film and the novel were actually based on a series of sensory deprivation experiments that were done in the 1960s by a guy called John C. Lilly, who was a contemporary of, uh, you know, the other uh, Dennis Leary and so forth, oh, yeah. uh, believers in psychedelic experimentation back yeah. in the 60s. And Lilly did, ex- did a series of experiments where people were in sensory uh, isolation chambers and were given a variety of psychotropic drugs and had uh, various uh, experiences which therapeutically were said to give the patients insight into some of the problems that they were facing and to deal with uh, therapeutic issues quite rapidly. And it's interesting that psychedelic drug use is coming back in a fringe way with the renewed interest in the 2000s. Uh, this film stars William Hurt. In fact, it was his first motion picture appearance and also, contrary to popular belief anabolics, mm-hmm. it was the first film in which Drew Barrymore made an appearance. Most people, you ask, what was Drew Barrymore's first film? And the answer will come back, E.T. But she actually had a small part in Altered States as well. As a baby, presumably. As a very young child, Mm. yes. The daughter of the protagonist, I think, uh, played by William Hurd, a guy called Edward Jessup, who's a university professor of abnormal psychology. Of course he is. Of course he is. (laughs) Abnormal psychology. Uh, I think one of the Ghostbusters was an abnormal psychologist. (laughs) Many, many psychologists are actually abnormal, so that's perhaps... Not surprising. <laughs> this character in the film, whilst you are so bad, yep. whilst he's studying schizophrenia, he begins to think that other states of consciousness are as valid as those that most of us objectively experience during our waking lives, and he begins experimenting with a, a flotation tank. Several years later, he finds himself in a situation where he hears of a Mexican tribe that experiences shared illusion states through the use of a compound called ayahuasca. I'm not sure if I've uh, pronounced that correctly, but it's apparently a, a herbal concoction brewed up by certain South American tribes deliberately in order to experience altered states of consciousness. So it has psychedelic properties. So the protagonist of this film participates in an ayahuasca ceremony. He experiences bizarre and intense hallucinations and returns to the US inspired to try and combine both psychedelic use and the use of flotation tanks in order to achieve uh, altered states which might be equally valid to our own. So his early experiments... uh, 
disturb him greatly. Uh, in the best tradition of film scientists, he's his own experimental subject and he goes into his own flotation tank and when he emerges, uh, he insists that the visions that he had inside the tank, which were of uh, you know primitive early hominids, you know, like a flashback to a race memory, mm. <laughs> becomes convinced that these visions have become externalised and he insists that he gets x-rayed after he leaves the tank and the radiologist who reports his x-ray uh, says that they belong to a gorilla rather than a human being mm. he goes on and uh, isn't deterred by this you know <laughs> you'd think that would be a fairly major side effect of an experimental treatment but he goes into further experiments and uh, the deeper he goes the more dramatic his transformation becomes he emerges from the tank on on one occasion as literally an early hominid as a small light-skinned ape-like creature that sort of runs runs amok and wow causes distress before he converts to human form and ultimately in the cli in the climax of the film he sort of becomes a, a protoplasmic ball of energy you know like a primordial life form and uh, only through his wife trying to anchor him in human reality can he revert and conquer that altered state experience mm -hmm. so some of these early experiments that were done back in the 1960s with uh, isolation tanks are really interesting Dr. Anabolics they would no way mm -hmm. get through a, uh, a modern ethics committee Mm -hmm. They were done in the, the heady days before institutional ethics committees and they usually involved healthy volunteers who were paid. They were usually university students and they would be either placed in soundproofed, sensory-deprived rooms or alternatively flotation tanks. And a series of these experiments were done by a psychologist in Montreal called Donald Hebb and the idea was to reduce sensory stimulation to a minimum and see what happens. And uh, after only a few hours, the students involved in these experiments became acutely restless. They started to crave stimulation. They'd talk or sing to themselves or recite poetry just so that they'd have some sort of stimulus to their uh, cranium. And later, many of them became highly anxious or, or even emotional. They, they struggled with cognitive performance as well. They became fr frankly confused and they struggled with mathematics and word association tests. More alarmingly, though, the longer somebody was left in one of these isolation chambers, uh, the more they were likely to experience hallucinations starting with points or lights or shapes and then eventually evolving into uh, bizarre scenes such as squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders. Mm. So, you know, after a period of time, they became frankly psychotic. They'd hoped the researchers to observe their subjects over several weeks, but the trial was cut short because most of the experimental subjects became too distressed to carry on mm. and few, in fact, were able to tolerate this perceptional emotional sensory deprivation experience beyond a couple of days and the theory behind all this is when you have a, a sensorium that's used to being bombarded by multiple stimuli that we're exposed to in everyday life that when you deprive a brain of that stimulation it starts to generate its own stimuli thus hallucinations you know if you're deprived of visual input you might uh, develop visual hallucinations if you're described of auditory input you might begin hearing things so mm. perhaps the message with flotation th tanks as with many things in life anabolics is that a little bit of something is probably okay but too much of something can be actually quite harmful and what happens to the doctor at the end of the movie you're allowed to, is it too is it too you know it's not an idea film we've probably got past the spoiler alert phase oh it's it's a happy hollywood ending you know he's he's he appears from his last flotation tank as a protoplasmic ball of energy and he's taken home to be observed by his wife in the hope that at some stage he'll revert to normal uh 
uh, this happens briefly, but then he spontaneously reverts back into this altered state without the use of the flotation tank, and he's in danger clearly of becoming permanently altered. And the happy Hollywood ending is it's through the love of his wife who holds him and keeps him grounded in human reality that through her love he's able to recenter himself and remain human. There you go. I must watch that again. That sounds pretty freaky, I have to say. Which reminds me, have you been watching the Black Mirror series? I started watching it oh, last night. I watched God. episodes one and two. And isn't episode one just a Unbelievable. beauty? Unbelievable. It gets, it's three series now. I recommend to anybody who likes, likes their sci-fi, a little bit edgy, a little bit now, a mm-hmm. little bit kind of all too much, I can imagine, what it's, you know, it's really good series. And the central conceit, I think, is that the Black Mirror, because yes. a lot of these episodes have technology-based themes, the Black Mirror is our mobile phones and our screens into which we spend so much time and ho- staring. And also holding this up to us to see what could happen in the future. Mm-hmm. It's just a, I reckon it's a super series. I thought, I thought you might like that. Okay, well, we're winding down now. Thank you so much. That I'm going to go and get that from the, see if I can find that on Netflix, and I'll have to watch that again. I'm just going to finish up now by thanking everybody. This is our last series, last uh, session for the year, uh, Christmas next week, of course. So thanks to everybody who's been part of the show this year, to all our panellists who come on every week, um, sending out our love to McZiff today, who's at home recovering from some surgery. Uh, we said he didn't he need it. his sporin removed. <laughs> it was the facelift. Let's let me just tell you, it was the facelift. But we we said we wouldn't say too much about those things. But we wish we wish you well, um, Maxif. Hope you're back on uh, track next week. To all the staff behind the scenes uh, who help us all the time, including all the wonderful volunteers who come in over a radiothon, all the people who do our podcasts for us, all the technicians, everybody who helps us, all our guests who joined us in the last year, who've just been so fabulous, and we, we thank you so much. Our fabulous Kent, who can't be here this morning who does a wonderful who's a wonderful store at making sure we stay on air and keep our microphones on and uh, all the little basics otherwise would be beyond us jed thank you for coming in today to fill out and happy christmas and to all our lovely listeners tuning in and supporting the show we really appreciate it and we know that a lot of you out there do wonderful work on in the field we know we have a lot of people in the mental health and health sector generally we know you do a lot of wonderful work and you give you give of yourself so much in all your work so we hope you take time this year to give yourself some space nourish your own mental health and come back and join us again in 2017 for some fun. Stay tuned for Einstein and Go-Go. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? All oh, right, okay. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.